So good to be with you today. We're in the middle of a chapter here at Ramp Church called The Missional Life. The Missional Life. And it's been an amazing chapter. We're several, several weeks in and we've been diving into some really cool themes here on Sundays. And then we've been doing an even deeper dive in our communities on Wednesday nights. And that's been the places where we've kind of worked out the practicals. How do these big picture themes and the lessons that we're learning from the Word of God, how do they apply to my life? And I have found this season of Ramp Communities as rich as any season we've ever had. And it's been so neat to hear your stories, Ramp Church, to be inspired, uh, to share some of our own, all of us, our own struggles along the way, some of the challenges in learning how to live this missional life that God has called us to. But ultimately this chapter is not just about doing something for God, but it's about having eyes to see what God is already doing in the world and then joining him in that work. The missional life is about living with the conviction that God is already at work in our city, in our families, in our workplaces, even maybe when we don't see him at work, when we don't see the presence of his character or his desires or his design, it's, it's having eyes to see what he's up to. So we've talked about themes like the radical, unconditional love of God and how that motivates us to love the world around us. We've talked about justice and that God's heart for justice and for mercy. Um, we've talked about radical hospitality. What does it look like to be, to be drawn towards the others and the strangers in our lives? Um, it's been beautiful. It's been such an incredible chapter. We've also talked about work and the way your career, your work life fits into the mission that God's up to in the world. And today we're talking about designing your life, designing your life. Uh, we're really going to dive into the idea on Wednesday in, in Ramp Communities uh, about the difference between uh, living by default, where we're just drifting, or living by design. And I'm going to set up that whole concept. And really, you and I have the option of one or the other. We're either, we're either drifting, we're living by default in our life, or there's something intentional about the way we're living. And I love this teaching because in many ways, a lot of the streams, the themes that we've started are going to come together to kind of form a river of life today. What does it look like to design your life? What does it look like to actually have intention behind the way that you live and not just have a hodgepodge of my experiences, maybe avoiding pain, um, living by fear or uh, uh, what, what we're going to really unpack uh, uh, as a segmented life. But what does it look like to have a wholehearted life, to actually intentionally with God design the life that, that I want, design the life that God's called me to have and join God in the mission that he's called us to. So I'm going to read two stories from the Gospel of Luke, and they're going to be really kind of contrasted. In Luke's history of Jesus' life, 
he tells these, um, uh, he records these two stories that Jesus told. One is called, uh, commonly called the rich young ruler, and the other is the story of Zacchaeus. And in Luke's gospel, he, he ties these two stories together. So perhaps um, you're new to faith. This is such a great week for you to be here. Every week is a great, great week for you to be here, but I'm so thankful you're spending your Sunday with us and Ramp Church. Really excited to dive in to this word. So let's first look at Luke chapter number 18, starting in verse 18. Um, and a ruler asked Jesus, so Jesus is kind of in the middle of, of his teaching, and uh, there's a lot of people listening, and Jesus kind of roamed from place to place teaching. And in between those teachings, many of the, these historians, these historical writers like Luke who wrote about these events that they saw, they record conversations that Jesus actually had in between these teachings. This is one of those conversations. So a ruler asks Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. So this is obviously someone who Jesus is, is recognizing here that they're probably Jewish. They, they knew the Jewish law, the Old Testament law. So Jesus is acknowledging that. And he's saying, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And uh, the ruler said, all these I've kept from my youth. So this dude's got his life together. He's rich. He's, uh, he's obviously over something because Luke calls him a ruler here. Other accounts of the same story um, affirm this. And uh, he said, I, I've kept all these things that you're telling me to do. I've kept them even from since when I was a kid. Jesus heard this and he, he responded by saying this, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. But when the young man heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he become sad, said, he said to those who had watched this situation, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's actually easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard what Jesus had just said, they, their response was, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? And Jesus said, what's impossible with men is possible with God. Some translations say, um, basically, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And so what we have here is someone who's, who's kind of got their life all together, um, from the outside at least. They have wealth, they have prestige, they have authority and power. Um, they apparently live a moral life. He says, I've, I've kept the Jewish moral and ceremonial, ceremonial law my whole life. And they come to Jesus and they go, okay, I've got my life together. Now, I, I, I want to make sure I've got eternity covered as well. What do I need to do to do that? And you think that this is an anti-wealth verse, but it isn't, because how do we know that? Because we see, we see throughout the New Testament that wealth in, it, in and of itself is not seen as a bad thing. It's more about what place does wealth have in our hearts? 
where is that wealth in the, the hierarchy of our own heart desires, our own heart longings, and what do we ultimately trust in? And Jesus was identifying that love, that trust in this man's heart. When he said, I, I realize you've done all those things, but there's si still something in the center of your life that is a priority above God. So you do have faith, but your faith has not yet touched your wealth. You do have faith, but your faith has not yet touched your money. It hasn't yet touched your finances. In essence, this rich young ruler was living a segmented life. He had his, he had his Jesus life, his moral life, his faith life, his, his, but then he also had some other segments, his wealth life. And Jesus was trying to say, I, I acknowledge, yes, the faith part of your life has been sound, but what I'm asking of you is for the faith part of your life to influence every other part of your life. And the young man realized that's what Jesus was asking of him and went away sad because he wanted to call the shots on the money segment, but Jesus wanted to call the shots on, a, on every segment. And now it's, it's really interesting because Luke records Jesus's life and Jesus is still on his travels. And then in just the next chapter, in Luke chapter 19, um, he records Jesus interacting with someone else, and this person's named Zacchaeus. Let's look at this, Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho, another town, and he was passing through the town. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and he's passing through Jericho. There was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Okay, so now we have two rich people who have, who have come up to Jesus really within just a few verses of each other. In, in this story. The first one was someone who'd committed their lives to following the Old Testament law, which Jesus also had, had followed since he was a kid. And now we have a contrast. They may both be rich, but Zacchaeus had not been as devoted to the law. Actually, the Bible calls him a chief tax collector. And he had riches, but the way he got his riches was a little different than the other guy. We don't really know how the other guy got his riches. But we do know that it wasn't by tax collecting because that would have been mentioned. Now, this doesn't really come through in modern times. But in ancient times, in, in the Near East and in Jewish culture, tax collectors were about the most despised segment of community. Because they were Jewish, they'd been raised Jewish, they were ethnically Jews, but they'd become loyal to the governing nation, which was Rome at that time. And the way they got rich, the way they made their money, is by exploiting people as they received taxes. So they received taxes on behalf of the occupying nation, which was Rome. But they received it from the people that they were born into, which were the Jewish people. But there was provision kind of in the law. It was a bit, it was a bit sleazy, a bit, a bit uh, uh, kind of slimy. But they would, add, they, would, they would add money on addition to the taxes for their own, own well-being. So you can kind of think like a modern-day Zacchaeus may be like a mafia leader or a mob boss who's like in cahoots with the government somehow. He was despised. Zacchaeus was by the crowds who were following Jesus. And by all social etiquette, 
he should have been despised by Jesus. Okay, because Jesus was a rabbi, a Jewish teacher. There was a man named Zacchaeus, but Zacchaeus was interested in what Jesus was doing. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not. Because he was small of stature. Now, some commentators actually believe that the crowd was willingly purposefully keeping Zacchaeus away from seeing Jesus. So it, it wasn't just like there's this, there's this crowd moving through the streets as Jesus is traveling through Jericho and he's, the dude's so short he just can't see Jesus. It's more than that. It's, he was so despised that the crowd wouldn't allow him close to Jesus. So Zacchaeus ran on ahead of the crowd and then he did what someone who's rich and wealthy and of, and of, uh, of high uh, stature would, um, as, far as, as far as in the community, would never do. He climbed up into a tree to see Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up in the tree and he said to him, Zacchaeus. Now, right now we know he's a prophet because he knows the dude's name. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. And when the crowd saw it, they all grumbled, Jesus has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, again, that doesn't translate the same, but imagine, imagine Ramp Church, if your pastor went, out, went over to a mafia boss's house one night this week. That wouldn't really settle well with you, would it? That's exactly what is, is being looked at right here. Jesus has gone to be a guest at this man's house. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, to Jesus, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, and he had, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. We have two, two different rich men, but that's where, two different rich men, but that's kind of where the commonalities stop. One gets the call to follow Jesus and goes away sad. He, want, he wanted to maintain his segmented life. The other gets a call to follow Jesus and says he's going to give away half of all of his wealth willingly. Jesus didn't even ask it of him. And he's going to return fourfold back everything that he'd taken from others, everything that he had exploited from others. You see, the first one had a relationship that was real, but it was segmented. Segmented. And I, I want to talk a bit about what does that look like to have a segmented life? Ultimately, this, this chapter is about living missionally and living a missional life, and that is a wholehearted devotion. So I just want to break it down in the way we often think about life. If you look at the different aspects of our life, money, entertainment, our relationship with money, entertainment, the, our relational life, political life, educational life, our faith life, and our work life. And I'm not saying these, these uh, percentages are accurate, but just a general idea of the way we live life. Many of us, when we come to faith in Jesus, we add faith to our life. You can see right here, this is, our, this is the faith portion. It's glowing blue. I call this the add-on life. You're just adding faith on. You're adding Jesus on. I'm not saying our faith, when we're, when we're living this kind of add-on life, that our faith is ingenuine. It, it may be genuine, but it's segmented. 
It's, it's a facet. So maybe we can look at that as a time frame. Maybe that's a Sunday morning faith. Maybe it's a Wednesday night faith in ramp communities. Or maybe it's just, you know, I have a genuine faith, but it inspires me. But everything else in my life is basically mine. I call the shots. It's where I want, it's where I want it to be. God has a place but it's not everything. And many of us recognize in our own spiritual journey, this isn't the way the Bible's called us to live. It's real, but it's segmented. And so we, we hear verses like Jesus speaking in Matthew 22, 36 through 40, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus says, this is the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with what? With all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment, Jesus says. So we know this isn't right. So oftentimes, instead of an add-on life, this is kind of what our faith life looks like. We go, okay, man, you know what? This is true. My life doesn't have enough Jesus in it. And so what we do is we go, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to have a significant faith life. And what happens is we squeeze the rest of our life into maybe a, a tiny portion. So now we have our work life, our relational life, our entertainment, money, our political life, educational life, whatever. And whatever, whatever other sections you want to put in there. Maybe your relational life includes family, friends. Maybe for, for that, it's, maybe it's your, also your, 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 your sexual life, whatever. You can, you can break those down into further categories. But our faith life is this huge part. And we go, yes, Jesus is significant to me. And if, if, if this is us, well, oftentimes this comes out in Jesus is everything to me. He's my all. And those are great statements. But the problem with this is that maybe your faith is actually significant, but it's not holistic. So your faith life is a huge part of your life, but your faith life doesn't infiltrate or infuse itself into all of your life. So maybe there's a smaller priority in your life to your work than the way you lived before, but you're still working with, with, with a, a worldly perspective, with a perspective that's not infused or informed or shaped by your faith, but it's just minimized. And the thing about this is this isn't missional living because missional living is learning how to see what God is up to in every facet of life. My work life, my relational life, my entertainment life, my money life, my political life, my education life, every, every part. And so this isn't it either. Our faith is not meant to be an add-on faith. It's not meant to be significant, but still segmented. It's meant to be holistic. This is actually what it's meant to look like. That our faith is not a segment in our life. Our faith colors and shapes and permeates all of our life. That we're not, we're not going, okay, how do I fit God into the, the, the pie of my priorities? But how does Jesus, following Jesus, my faith, shape and influence and impact the rest of my life. The psalmist said it like this, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Then he says this, unite my heart to fear your name. What is this right here? This is a united life. 
It's moving out of this segmented life into a holistic life. Jesus illustrates it like this in Matthew 13. He used this illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. I actually believe this isn't just a Jesus idea, but all of us actually crave this holistic kind of living. But it's amazing because most of us don't live that way. The American philosopher Josiah Royce wrote about this in his book, uh, The Philosophy of Loyalty. And he's a secular philosopher, but look at the way he, he even sheds light on this idea. He says, we must be each of us at the center of his own active world. And yet each of us longs to be in harmony with the very outermost heavens that encompass with the lofty orderliness of their movements, all of our restless doings, the stars fascinate us, and yet we also want to keep our own feet upon our solid human earth. Our fellows, meanwhile, overwhelm us with the might of their customs. We, in turn, are inflamed with the naturally unquenchable longing that we should somehow listen to the cries of our every individual desire. So he's talking about the outside world, the inside world. We're, we're longing for both of these. Now this, what, listen, listen what Joyce calls this. Now this divided being of ours demands reconciliation with itself. It is one long struggle for unity. Its inner and outer realms are naturally at war. Yes, it wills, yet it wills both realms. Royce says it wants them to become one. What's he talking to? This is, this is, what, he's, this is what he's ultimately saying. This is, how I would, this is how I would summate it. We're living segmented, broken lives, but we long to be whole. We're living segmented, broken lives, but we're, there's a longing on the inside of us to be whole. That's what Royce is referring to. So even as a secular philosopher, he's identifying this deep human need that there's this discontinuity between between the different aspects of our lives, our outer world, our inner world, but there's something in us that is longing for unity. It's longing for this oneness. And I, I, for the sake of this series, this chapter that we're in, Ramp Church, I believe that whole living, that wholeness, we can call the missional life. And here's what I want to unpack for the next little bit. You move into missional living or you move into that whole life living. You cross the line between segmented life and holistic living when you stop managing your faith and your faith starts managing you. You cross into missional living, into holistic living, when you stop managing your faith and your faith starts managing you. What does it look like to have a life that's permeated by my faith? It looks like I am no longer the one in control of what my faith life affects and what it doesn't. My faith is now in control 
and shaping what my life looks like in every area. And this is the question I want to ask you. Are you managing which areas of your life your faith touches? Are you managing that or is that up to God? Is God the determining factor in, in what your faith life touches, uh, how you shape your educational life, how you shape your sexual life, how you shape your relational life, how you shape your work and career, or are you managing the way your faith permeates the other areas? And I want us to look through some questions that are for the purpose of evaluating ourselves and seeing, am I being managed or am I managing? Look at this. Look at these questions. Here's the first question you can ask yourself. Is impact for God in each of these areas of my life my first concern? Or does it come along at some time later? Is my first, my first concern when making a decision or when shaping where I go to university, what career I choose, what city I live in, what my friend group is, what I choose to talk about, my entertainment choices. Is my first concern what I want, what would make me popular, what, what is uh, seen as, as impressive by the people around me, or is my first concern impact for God? Matthew recorded Jesus' words in Matthew 6, like this. Jesus would say it like this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. Jesus is trying to say, one of the ways you know you've crossed into holistic living, kingdom living, that you've crossed into missional living, is if impact for God is your first concern. When you're looking at the university choices, uni student, high school student, maybe you're in sixth form, you're looking at the unis available to you, you're not looking primarily based on what do I wanna do, what interests me the most, that has a part to play in it, again, it, faith permeates every facet of life. It's not faith or my interests. But your primary concern is, where can, I in, where can I cause the most impact for God's kingdom? Where is God calling me to be? That's how you know you've crossed over into missional living. Here's, here's another question. Is anxiety about your future driving you? Is your first concern for that decision or that facet of your life impact for God's kingdom, or am I making the decisions I'm making because down deep there's an anxiety about my future. There's somewhere that I want to go, but, my, but, but I'm being ultimately shaped by fear. We can call fear a hidden master. Why? Because it hides. It hides itself. It sometimes looks like wisdom. It sometimes looks like caution. It sometimes looks like uh, good judgment or discretion. But oftentimes it's a deep anxiety about my future. It's amazing in that chapter of Matthew 6 where Jesus is talking about seeking first God's kingdom. What he talks about before he gets into that is actually about anxiety. Don't have anxiety about what you wear, where you live. Don't have anxiety about where you're going in life. And then Jesus says, instead, seek first the kingdom of God and expect God to add everything else to you. Why? Because Jesus knows anxiety can actually drive us to the place where we're not living holistically, we're not living mission-shaped lives, we're actually living lives shaped and, and, and carved by fear, by anxiety about our future. If that's you, you need to look at Isaiah chapter 41, which over and over says, do not fear. Do not 
fear. We even operate sometimes with the best intentions out of the fear of missing God. Sometimes we're just, we're just scared. Our lives really uh, driven often by anxiety. And I just want to give you permission today. What if the fear of even missing God was out of your vocabulary? What if, it, what if there was a healthy fear of God, but that, that crippling anxiety of, oh, I don't, I don't want to step out because I don't know if I'm missing. I don't want to miss God. I don't want to get ahead of him. What if there was a desperation for him, but there's also a confidence knowing he's big enough to keep me on the right path? How would your life change if that anxiety that, that you're thinking about your future was gone? Is impact for God your first concern? Is anxiety about your future driving you? Here's another question to look at the facets of your life through. Is the way I'm living in that area prioritizing temporal values or is it prioritizing eternal values? Is my, this is a, a good one for this, is our financial life. Is what you're doing with your finances, is it primarily built around things that you and I are not going to take into the cemetery? We're not going to take to the graveyard. I mean, they're not going to be pulling a U-Haul up to, your, to a moving truck up to your, your gravesite and dumping all your stuff in there and burying it. I mean, that's just not going to happen. That, that's, that's, that's prioritizing temporal values when instead you can use, you can shape your financial life around what is eternal. Now, money is a great place to see that because there's checks and balances there. It's black and white where I spent my money. But that same principle works on every facet of our life. Am I prioritizing temporal gain and forgetting about eternal value, something that lasts forever. What does it look like to use your intellect, to use your education for something that is of eternal value? What does it look like to give your life for something that causes transformation in the lives of others, that causes the advancement and the well-being and, the hu and, and, and flourishing for all of humanity in accordance with God's Word? Is impact for God your first concern? Is anxiety about your future driving you? Does it prioritize temporal values or eternal values? Short range or the long range view? This, this one's going to hurt a bit right here, Ram Church. This is the next one. Well, you need to ask yourself, what are your no-fly zones? You, you know what a no-fly zone is. Like there's areas above countries, areas of land where it's a no-fly zone. So if I am a pilot... Uh, maybe I'm a military pilot from another nation. I can't fly over enemy airspace. It's viewed as an act of war. We see that all the time, don't we, on the news, where it may be a plane accidentally flies into enemy territory, enemy airspace, and then now there's this hostility that starts between nations. What's happening there? Someone flew in someone else's no-fly zone. I think all of us, whether we know about them or not, have no-fly zones with God. What are your no-fly zones? That if he flies into that airspace over your life, if he flies into one of those, the, one of those pie charts, you're like, ah, 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 enemy territory. Get out of here. I view that as hostile. You can't fly in that area of my life. Maybe for you, maybe there is this idea, maybe you love the idea of transcendent truth. It's just like, you just love the idea of seeking these transcendent values, these moral values. And Christianity has one of the most compelling and robust uh, system of moral values and transcendent values. So that's what draws you to faith. But you're like, get out of my sex life. Nuh -uh. No, you can't say anything about that. That's a no-fly zone. So who's in charge? Who's picking? Who's managing who here? Are you managing the way that God's truth uh, permeates your life? 
or is God managing the way his truth permeates your life? Because you don't get it both ways. That's what it means to live missionally. That's what it means to live this holistic life is we're allowing God's truth to come and permeate every facet of my life. Maybe for you, you're like, you're like, yeah, I love the idea behind this, this intentional ordered life that the Bible lives. It's like this ancient code for successful living. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're a more pragmatist. And you're like, I love the fact that, yes, there's this wisdom in the Bible and it tells me uh, the right way to live and structure my family or whatever. And you love to glean from those truths, but get out of my pocketbook. There ain't no way anybody's going to tell me what to do with my money. What, what's just happened? You've discovered a no-fly zone. God, I love the fact that you give me some great tips on how to parent, some great tips on how to treat my neighbor. I love the practical elements of this, but you, no, I mean, my money's mine. I'm a self-made person and no, no one's going to touch my, what is that? You've discovered a, a no-fly zone. You've discovered a place where you're saying, Mm-mm, God, you, you, you can't be here. Maybe it's your sexuality. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your clothing. Sometimes it's that, it's that practical. Maybe it's your entertainment. Maybe it's social issues for you. Maybe for you, there's some political ideologies that you have that you're like, Jesus, you can't go there. I, I actually don't, I'm, I'm really not even concerned what you have to say. I've already made up my mind about that. That's a no-fly zone. That's not holistic living. That's segmented living. Faith has an aspect, but it's not permeated. It's not yeast. It's not permeated. It's more like some seasoning, some seeds on the top. That's, that's, what, that's what kind of faith that is. What are your no-fly zones? This next question is really, really similar to this, and then it's this. Where is God's word offending you? Where is God's word offending you? Can I just get real with you right here? If this hasn't offended you yet, you're probably not reading it right. Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers of, of my home nation in America, um, famously had um, what's now called the Jefferson Bible, where he, he, had, he, he appreciated the moral value of the Bible and Jesus' teaching, but he was offended by the miraculous, the supernatural parts of the Bible. So he, he actually literally took a pair of scissors to his Bible and cut out the miracles. And eventually that turned into what we now call the Jefferson Bible. What did he do? He... He realized there's part of this that offends me, and instead of letting that shape me, I'm actually going to change, I'm going to remove what's offensive to me in this. But see, the thing about that is something different is offensive to all of us. So you, you, can't, you can't determine what's ultimate truth by what offends you or what offends me because something different offends all of us. Tim Keller says it like this, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Let me say that again. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. You see, if he's God, by nature, something he thinks is true is going to contradict something I already believe. Because by nature, he transcends me. His intellect transcends mine. His wisdom transcends mine. His experience transcends mine. He's, he's been there. He's done that. He gets it. So at some point, there's going to be a contradiction. If I've never been offended by God's word, maybe I'm not actually on the missional life journey. Maybe I'm living the segmented life. Maybe my faith life has a, has, maybe it's real, 
but just maybe, maybe it's just a, a piece of the pie. Maybe it hasn't, like yeast, infiltrated every part of my life. That's this journey. It's about holistic living. Where is God's word offending you? And I, I just want to, this isn't to shame you. I just want to give you in, encouragement. One of the highest compliments Jesus ever paid was to a man that was his contemporary. He was actually his cousin called John. John the Baptist is what we call him. And John the Baptist was this radical prophet dude. But John the Baptist got into some like political trouble uh, while Jesus was on the earth. And he ended up in prison. And John was, was super close with Jesus. And John is in prison. And at, at some point in this journey, we have to wonder, did John get a little confused or maybe even a step further, did he get offended? Because at one point he sends his disciples to Jesus. He sends his followers to Jesus to say, are you actually the son of God? Are you actually the savior? And I think what was going through John's mind is, I'm confused because if you're the Savior, why am I in prison? Why is this happening to me? And Jesus' response to him was, look at the things that I do and, 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 and tell John, here's what he does. Look at the fruit and that's going to tell you about who I am. And then he says this, but blessed is he who is not offended because of me. What was Jesus trying to say? Even the best of us. Even John the Baptist, there's going to be some things about his life that he just can't square up. He just doesn't understand. How does this fit into God's plan? How does this truth fit into the reality of, what, of the way I see the world? And Jesus is trying to say, that's where the rubber meets the road. When you come up to one of those, those issues where you're offended by God, whose way are you going to choose? If you're living a segmented life, you're going to choose your own way. You're going to be your own master. You're going to be your own God. If you're choosing the Jesus way, the way to eternity, the way to, the way to life and life more abundantly, you're going to submit your version of the ideal to Jesus is. That's the missional life. That's holistic living. Maybe for you, maybe you say, no, all of my life is submitted. And I just want to go, then maybe you are a Jesus follower. Here's a question for you. Are you choosing sacrifice over obedience? Sometimes this looks really religious for us as Jesus followers. Sometimes we think the hardest possible choice must be God. But sometimes um, that's harder still than obedience. Because sometimes obedience makes me do something when I'm just following God's word that I, I can't make sense of. But sometimes a sacrifice, something that I could, uh, sometimes I could sacrifice for God and it makes sense to me and I can connect all the dots and I can see, but ultimately down deep, I'm, I'm, I'm in my heart thinking I'm earning something from God all along. He's just wanting simple obedience. He just wants me to hear him and do what he says. Why? Because that's a heart of submission. That's a heart of realizing Jesus is at the center. Here's another question. Are you waiting for God to do what he wants you to do? What does it look like to live a holistic life? It, 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 it looks like I, my faith is infiltrating every part of my life and I'm moving forward based on what God says. You know, I look back at Zacchaeus, going back to that. I'm so inspired by his story for a number of ways. Um, one he absolutely stood in defiance of the shame 
and, and the ridicule he was getting from the crowds around him. He climbed a tree, which was um, pretty dishonorable for someone of, of, of his wealth in that time, um, in, a, in a culture where any sort of physical labor was looked at as um, beneath the wealthy. And then um, I'm amazed by his courage by actually allowing Jesus to come over to his house. And, and, and we know because of Jesus' travels and the customs of that day that Jesus didn't just stay for a meal, but most likely Jesus and all of his disciples spent the night there because there wouldn't have been enough time for them to have a meal and then travel on to Jerusalem. So he had a slumber party with Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus opened up his home, but he didn't just open up his home. He had a radical encounter with Jesus that day. And what started off maybe as someone who he was interested in seeing became something that blew up um, in his perspective and made him rethink everything. That's what it looks like to live the missional life. That's what it looks like to live holistically. But you know, another reason Zacchaeus' actions were powerful is because unbeknownst to him, he was foreshadowing another man's actions, a greater man. This man didn't gain his wealth and power by exploiting people and through injustice, but his power and wealth was a byproduct of who he was. We're talking about Jesus, of course. Maybe it sounds kind of funny to say that Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector, foreshadowed Jesus, but Zacchaeus didn't realize that the tree he climbed foreshadowed the tree that Jesus himself would climb. Like Zacchaeus, Jesus ignored the shame of the crowds. He pushed through their insults. He realized Jesus, as the creator of the universe, was actually giving himself to their shame. Zacchaeus found life at the top of his tree, but Jesus climbed towards death. Jesus' tree, the cross, was the place where Jesus found death so you could find life. He emptied heaven's bank account like Zacchaeus did his to redeem everything sin and injustice has taken from you and from me. Jesus gave his life, his whole life so that you and I don't have to live segmented, broken lives anymore, but that we could find whole-hearted, holistic, abundant life through his sacrifice. Do you want me to tell you ultimately there's no way, in spite of what the philosopher Royce says, there's no way you and I can discover holistic complete life outside of Jesus. But the beautiful thing about this message is we're not called to. We're ultimately called to find that life by receiving the life that Jesus gave. The writer in Hebrew said it like this, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud 
of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight, the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How, 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 how? How do we live a holistic life? This is what the writer in Hebrews says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He climbed the tree. He despised the shame. And now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And he's giving us the opportunity to do what Proverbs uh, said, that in all of our ways, not in some ways, not in the faith parts, not in the spiritual parts, but in all of our ways, if we acknowledge Jesus, Jesus will make straight our paths. That's the promise. That's the promise for you and I. That's the missional life. That's holistic living. That's what it looks like for the yeast of the faith that, that, that God has given to us to permeate every part of our life. That's what it looks like to transfer my trust in my own abilities and transfer them to Jesus. That's what it means to live a fully devoted missional life to him. Why do we want to do this? Why, 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 why? Because I just want to just tell you whole life devotion it's more satisfying, it's more fulfilling than any other way to live. Royce is right about that. It's more satisfying, that's the thing we ultimately long for. But because anything, the second reason is because anything that isn't built for Jesus won't last. We live this way because it's, it's satisfying, it's fulfilling to our deepest longings, but we also live this way because we're looking into eternity and we're realizing everything that will be in eternity are the things that are built on Jesus in time. There's eternal reward for you and I. I want to pray as we close. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus who despised the shame of the crowds, who climbed his tree, his cross, and who gave his life so that we could find life. <laughs> he conquered the cost of brokenness of this segmented living so that we could find that John 10, 10 life and life to the fullest. I just pray today all across the homes, the living rooms, the bedrooms of the people tuning in today to Ramp Church, I just pray that that life would be discovered. And Father, we, we make that decision today to transfer our trust to Jesus and to say, Jesus, we want what you have for us. We give up our life. We give up segmented living and we step into the fullness of the missional life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.